to another episode of Boricen. This is a Puerto Rican podcast for Boricuas everywhere, uh, both in the diaspora and in Puerto Rico, but also a podcast for people interested in the issues affecting Puerto Rico. Uh, I've definitely seen a lot of interest in the international community as well as Americans in the U.S. who are trying to figure out what's going on. They're seeing all kinds of narratives, and I thought that with this podcast it was time to reclaim our voice and Rather than having someone else tell our story, you can hear directly from Puerto Ricans. This week is um, intense. This is this week I'm bringing you guys a story that you probably have never heard of before. Definitely ask people if you've heard of the Cerro Maravilla incident in Puerto Rico. This happened in Puerto Rico in the 1970s. And it's interesting because not a lot of people have heard this story and it is one hell of a story. So in order to tell the story, I luckily got contacted by somebody who is a playwright. Um, he does a lot of other things, as you're going to find out. But this particular story is not only one that has been sort of obscured, but it is an interesting from from various angles, but it is an interesting look at people who are pro statehood. Now, now, a lot of people might say I mean, and it's clearly the case that there is a party in Puerto Rico that is pro-statehood. In my public health experience and in my public health education, we learn a lot about self-hate, internalized racism, and these are terms that are very common in my field but are not quite as understood. This is a country that has been, in many ways, you know, is starting this movement into understanding racism. You know, we went through the civil rights movement, but like this is almost a second wave now of people who are waking up to the issues that affect that affect minorities, that affect people of color. And so um, in this case, in this particular case, the reason I bring that up is because um, people who are pro-statehood are not bad people. They are people who really believe that through statehood, you can achieve equality. You can achieve putting Puerto Ricans economically in a, in a better place. There's so many reasons why statehood may, may sound like an amazingly simple solution to the problem of colonialism. Right. Um, but then you think about you think about why it is that we believe that a colony should rather than becoming its own nation, should push away their identity and their 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 patriotism for their own country and give it up to be become part of the U.S. Right. Especially in light of what historically has been a lot of oppression. And there has been a lot of there's there's been a lot of incidents that have led to the suppression of the Puerto Rican voice. Let's just say that. So in, this, in the case of, of the pro-statehooders, I think there's a lot of people who, you know, don't want to say whether or not they're for statehood or for independence. There's, there's a lot there that I can't cover in today's episode or in this short introduction. But what I can say is that in terms of internalized racism, you know, and I, I probably offend a lot of people with this, but what we have seen for people who are pro-statehood is a denial of identity, a denial of the historical facts that have led Puerto Rico to be 120 years later still a colony of the United States. I grew up in the U.S. I was born in the U.S. Many people say, oh, but you had the privilege of growing up in the United States and you're saying Puerto Ricans shouldn't be a state? You know, there's a lot that people don't understand about growing up as a Puerto Rican in the United States. There's discrimination, there's racism here, but there's also there's also this sense that I think for me growing up learning about the founding fathers of, of the United States that really jarred me in terms of looking at the Puerto Rican um, experience and at the Puerto Rican issue, the question of status. As many of you already know, the U.S. was a colony. So for me, learning about how the founding fathers said, give me liberty or give me death, learning about the American values of democracy, liberty, and freedom, it was a no-brainer for me. From the start, there was this inquietude, this, this uneasiness with telling people that Puerto Rico should be a state, that that set of, of theories around why Puerto Rico should be a state, it just did not quite fit. And the more that in this journey to help Puerto Rico, in this journey to raise the voices of Puerto Ricans, it's just really become clear to me that Puerto Rico, before the U.S. came and invaded it, was a colony of, of Spain, of the Spanish. So rather than provide the Puerto Rican people a path to self-determination, the United States has kept Puerto Ricans colonized. They are colonial subjects. 
And the more that we understand what led to where we are today, the better we can make these steps towards what I consider a need in order to eradicate the humanitarian crisis, the the public health crisis that's happening in Puerto Rico. You're not going to do it with statehood. Statehood is only going to exacerbate the the root cause of colonialism. So, So let's talk about that, right? Let's talk about what led us here. This story... The story is going to it's going to blow your mind because it's got so many different pieces to it. And it was um, it was definitely really interesting reading the play on the Cerro Maravilla incident because uh, the characters felt very real to me. And, you know, especially after having talked to John and interviewing John for this, it was very, very sad to think about the fact that Puerto Ricans have been manipulated, have been oppressed to the point where they would believe that their country should not be given independence. Like that is how the years of colonialism and the racism, how it's worked into the minds of certain Puerto Ricans to the point where they really believe that there is no way that a Puerto Rican can stand up and lead themselves and lead their country. And they want to come up with all kinds of reasons, corruption and how Puerto Ricans can't, not really understanding that the whole reason we are here is because of colonialism. The whole reason you see corruption, the whole reason that you see poverty, it's all rooted in the fact that 120 years ago, the United States invaded a country and treated them with so much racism, so much oppression. That's why we're here today. This interview is long, it's really long, but I I really invite you to share it, to listen to it in full. Reach out to John if you have any connections in theater or in in this sort of work, because it's, it's something that I think a lot of people need to know about. And once you do, once you start to like understand the things that have led us here, there's really no going back. There's really, you know, your eyes are open. So I hope you enjoy this interview. Um, thank you for listening. Please share. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I hope you enjoy it. Let me know what you think. John, I appreciate so much you taking the time to do this. Today is October 4th. I am in LA. You are on the East Coast. You're in Miami, right? Uh, yeah, Fort Lauderdale. Awesome. So we're each on different coasts, but I'm really glad we're coming together today to talk to you about uh, your work, about who you who you are. I think what you've done is really important. So why don't you first tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and um, your experiences and, and what you've been working on. Oh, thank you so much, Debbie. And, uh, and, and you know, as we were discussing before we started recording, I, I'm a fan of the show. Yes. Um, <laughs> and we, we, which is what led me to, to reaching out to you. So um, yeah. I'm really thrilled to be on here. And uh, thank you so much for, for making the time I know our, our schedules have been really weird, so I just want to thank you. Yeah, for sure. Um, and uh, as for myself, uh, I am the publisher of a company called La Casita Grande Press. We're now shortening that title to LCG Press. We're a publisher that focuses on Latin American writers, namely focusing on books that don't that don't go with the typical narratives, mm-hmm. whether it's, you know, and particularly when, when it comes to Latinos, uh, so much is placed on an immigration narrative or an identity narrative. Mm-hmm. And we're like, you know, we want to get away from that. We want to do stories that are human mm-hmm. and cover the wide spectrum of existence mm-hmm. um, that go beyond what white people would like to pigeonhole us in. Um, mm-hmm. And it's it's not just talking about identity or immigration that's the issue. It's also that those narratives have to be geared in a way that is comforting for certain groups of people namely white people and also that are aspirational that are positive and you know and and it's it's like you know that's that's one experience of life but literature should really cover all experiences of life and art shouldn't be always a source of comfort of course Mm. there's a place for that but art should also be a source of discomfort not just for the powers that be but also for the people within those communities Mm. and um I'm the author of five books as well, uh, one in uh, four in English, one in Spanish, uh, called Tristiana. Mm-hmm. And um, and my latest work is Puerto Rican Nocturne, which um, we're going to talk about today. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I've, I've also been a writer for Latino Rebels. I've been on Huffington Post, on LA Times, mm-hmm. a bunch of other publications. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but uh but yeah my my work is mostly experimental and also uh kind of geared toward philosophical and and moral conundrums i like placing characters in in positions that uh test their character test their strength of, as a person mm, i love that and that sounds like a powerful thing too what you said about not just you know, focusing on one piece of the the issues um, with Latinos, but like focusing on other things. I, I'm really excited to, to read more about what the work that you've done. And I'll definitely link a lot of these things um, for the listeners to listen to. I guess I wanted to ask you a little bit more, I think, around how you grew up. Um, did you grow up in La Isla? What was your experience growing up Puerto Rican? Uh, well, I was... I was actually born in a place called Collegeville, Pennsylvania, which is a suburb of Philadelphia. Pennsylvania. And um, I have no memory of it whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, you know, there, there are actually quite a few Puerto Ricans in mm. Philadelphia. And um, one who I've, I've gotten to know pretty well, uh, uh, Raquel Rivera Salas, mm. who's, uh, who's the Poet Laureate. She's mm-hmm. Boricua, and the first Boricua Poet Laureate of Philadelphia. Tengo que ir para allá. Tengo que ir para allá. And... Um, And she, she's wonderful. She, mm. She's a wonderful person. You should really have her on your show. On your show. But she, yeah, she's told me, she's talked up Philadelphia to me so much. And I'm like, I have no reason to go back Aww. except maybe to have dinner with you sí, <laughs> sometime. <claro>. You know? <laughs> But about myself, I'm sorry. I, um, I hate talking about myself, which is why, like, I don't write memoirs. Um, which is another thing that's, like, super popular now that I'm just, like, you're lazy. Like, I, I feel like if... All you can write about is yourself, then you're lazy. You have oh, no imagination. <laughs> What's wrong with you? <laughs> Anyhow, uh, yeah, I, I I was born there, but we moved within six months. My dad, uh, my, my parents came over uh, from San Juan in the late 1970s. Mm, cool. and, um, and I was born in 84. Uh, my dad, like a lot of Puerto Ricans, was in the Navy. Or in the military, I should say. Mm, um, wow. And, and he, he only did like four years. He hated it. He got out. Um, okay. And he was an engineer. And so he, he wanted to move up in the corporate world. So he kind of took any job that he was offered to him. So we ended up living in California and South Carolina and Georgia and Florida. Um, and, and I spent in Maryland. And, and so I spent all this time moving and the only place that was ever home for me was Fajardo, Puerto Rico, which was where my uh, maternal abuela lived. Mm. And that house, their, their house was my home because it was the only like stable fixture in my life. Did you say you spent um, summers there or and sometimes it, d- it depended on the year? Oh, just dif- different times of year, <laughs> not okay. just the summer. I mean, Christmas oh. and uh, spring breaks. Yeah. Um, But I, I spent just about every year in Puerto Rico until I was 17, 17 mm-hmm. or 18. Mm-hmm. And then um, the last time I was in Puerto Rico was 2008. And, and yeah, and, and so aside from Fajardo, I, I have family in Utuado and okay. Dorado and uh, Trujillo Alto, thing, things like that. So all the northern parts of the island. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my father, he, he you know, because uh, most Puerto Ricans, whenever they visit the island, they just stay with their family and they stay in whatever pueblo they're from. Mm-hmm. But my dad, my dad and his, his brothers were really into scuba diving Ooh. and, um, and kind of like adventure trips. Yeah. <laughs> so we would travel the entire island. Every time we'd go, we would see the entire island. And, um, You know, like I've met San Juaneros that have no idea that Ponce is a desert, for instance. You know, like they have no clue about it. Like, well, we have a desert on our island? So you've lived here your whole life. How do you not know that? Wow. But, yeah, <laughs> dude. And, and that's an experience. It's true, though, yeah. See, that's an experience I hear a lot where a lot of the people that I talk to in the diaspora, though, they go down, they see family, they don't get to see much of the island. Um, oh, and, yeah. and definitely when you're older, when you're able to, like, kind of do your own thing that's when people start to explore so yeah tell me a little bit about so that 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 must have been different for you that must have made you mm-hmm. did you feel more connected to like different towns and things like that well yeah yes i mean especially fajardo mm-hmm. like I, i i feel like fajardo is my hometown and i usually tell people that fajardo is my hometown and and tampa is where i became an adult because mm. uh, i went to college in tampa i got married in tampa became a father there so 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 yeah like those are those two places kind of symbolize the two main parts of my life and uh and you know i, I remember because my, my wife is boricua too mm. and, and i remember her, her 
one of her tias asked me once if I feel more Puerto Rican or more American or mm. if I feel like a mix. And I was like, no, I'm Puerto Rican completely because sí. like in my family growing up, it was basically there were Puerto Ricans and there were Nuro Ricans. <laughs> and my family was very prejudiced against Nuro Ricans oh, and no. other things. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I come from uh, Ser Franco. Uh, yo, yo vengo de una familia muy dysfunctional, you know, mm. <laughs> muy, muy caótico, yeah, sí. muy roto, um, in muchas maneras, and so, so, so yeah, there's a lot, a lot of issues. New Yorkers were just one of many groups that my family hated, but, <laughs> but uh, I, I remember being told growing up, for, for real, like, being told growing up, like, oh, New Yorkers are a different race. Mm. They're not even Puerto Ricans, they're, they're a different race, and, yeah. and also they make us look bad, and all, all those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, Do you know that's not that's something that's interesting that you say that because I think that that's um, for sure like the history of that has has I mean and I even remember growing up in Florida you know hearing the same thing where like there is this like almost this barrier but after Maria obviously there was almost like a I mean there was there was a huge shift because the Boricuas on the island and you know in the diaspora could see all of these efforts all across the states and in New York in particular there was a lot of a lot of work being done I don't know what you know what what were your thoughts about that oh yeah you know just like so many people I had the experience of when I was on the island that certain people would try to make fun of make fun of me or discredit my Puerto Ricanness by being like oh no you're a gringo you're mm -hmm. you know you're American you're not Puerto Rican Yep. And, and so yeah, like you, you would get that, of course. Yeah. But for me, the the way I see it, and, and particularly because the people who said it to me were people I knew personally and the family members mostly, mm -hmm. and I knew that those people had screwed up lives and they had all sorts of problems, mm -hmm. and so so <laughs> so so basically, chinga tu madre to use a Mexicanism to describe something and say to a Puerto Rican, go fuck yourself. You're just unhappy with your life. Go fuck yourself. Yeah. So it, ne it never bothered me, but it bothered my brother. Like my, okay. my brother actually ended up having all complex because of it. Claro. Yeah. But, but for me, it's like who I am. I was born as. Mm. I was born Puerto Rican. It's in my blood. It's in my DNA mm -hmm. that I am Puerto Rican. Yeah. Full-blooded, both my parents. Yeah. Uh, you know, my mother is uh, Afro-Boricua, um, and my father, given my last name, he's obviously more European Boricua, but but yeah, their, their families have been on the island uh, for hundreds of years, and so so that is me. Yeah. And however I act or behave is the result of the world around me, but mm. that still doesn't change who I am. And, mm. and I think that when people are like, oh, well, Puerto Ricans are supposed to act a certain way, it's like... Why are you putting limitations on how a group of people are supposed to act? Absolutely. Like, yeah. like you know, because because nobody ever says to an Anglo-Saxon person, whether it be British or American, mm. you're not acting American enough. You're not acting British enough. Thanks. You're not acting white enough. Mm -hmm. And it's like, no. Like, no, nobody would ever use that. And so I think that that's, that's just a way for insecure, messed up people to try to bring you down to their level. And try mm -hmm. to make you feel bad. So mm -hmm. I never let it affect me. Yeah. But did I see that there was a divide there? Absolutely. Absolutely there was a divide. Mm -hmm. Now I do got to say though that when I started hanging around New York, uh, which was in the early 2010s, mm -hmm. and, and now I, I go to New York all the time, mm -hmm. I have tons of friends there, I did see before Hurricane Maria yeah. how much more connected the New Yorkians were becoming to the island. See. And oh, I was noticing a lot too. more pride. Yeah, a lot See. of activism, a lot of pride, a, a lot of active knowledge. You know that they, you know, pe people reading El Nuevo Dia or or La Claridad, you know, every, every day or week uh, to know what was going on in the island. And you would meet people in New York who were just very informed, even before Maria. Mm -hmm. So it, it wasn't like I think sometimes when we talk about the effect of Maria, which of course was very profound. Mm -hmm. The effect of it, it, it didn't happen in a vacuum where, like, yeah. prior to that, nobody in the States talked to the people on the island. Like, it, it wasn't like that at all. There, there always was a connection there, mm -hmm. even if you had those assholes who <laughs> wanted to create division. Like, they, they were always going to be there. See. But there was also a lot of unity. Like, it, it, it mm -hmm. wasn't completely broken, that, that connection. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. 
It's interesting. You said, so you went to college and so you haven't been to the island since 2008. Or do you have any plans now to go back? I do, but uh, well, let, let me just say that that like 10 year period was, I was just getting out of college, but, but from like 2003 when I graduated high school all the way to, well, still, still actually <laughs> until November, I spent 2013 to November of 2018 either near homeless, on government assistance, mm. in the army, <laughs> uh, in the army, which was the only way I got out of poverty. Mm. Um, wow. uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I got into the army because they, basically my wife and I were in a situation, we had two young kids mm, and yes. um, no way to pay our rent without cutting into, like, buying them food. And right. so we made the decision of, like, well, the army would give us, like, a free place to stay. And that's a, is that a common, that's a common thing that happens, I think. I mean, not, not just in one particular group. I mean, not just Puerto Ricans. No, no, no. Yeah. Listen, the, the army, not just the army, all of the branches of the military are the home of the poor and disenfranchised. It, It is the people at the very bottom rung of society. And this is the only way that they can get out of that situation, even if just temporarily. Right. And, um, and, you know, in, in exchange, the, the government wrecks our minds and bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, but but that's, that's the price you pay to get out of poverty, basically. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that was the case for me. You know, I, and when I got out, it was also, it, it, it was basically scrambling to find jobs that could support me and my family, uh, which was much larger at that point. Mm-hmm. And then um, pretty much I, I have a job now. The reason I'm in Florida is I'm here on job training. And it's because I got a job with a company that pays me enough to actually support me and my family. And it's the first time in my adult life that I'm able to say that about a civilian job, which is pretty crazy. So so mm-hmm. that, that's the reason I haven't been on the island. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called being broke. And, um, Which happens to literally so, so many of us. I remember yeah, I remember yeah. hearing this often. It's a theme. Like a lot of us try to go back, but it's just financially it's so difficult. And so you, you started writing then. When did you start writing? When did this start? Okay, so I'm going to give you a really, really condensed. Really, okay. really condensed. Okay. <laughs> I grew up doing theater. Mm. I started writing plays as a teenager in order to write roles that me and my friends would actually find interesting. Mm, okay. Uh, I then became a street performer and then tried to go into film school, found that writing, uh, unlike film and theater, writing I could do while trying to make ends meet. And, uh, and so I got more and more into writing, which led to writing books, but then I really missed theater, so I started writing plays again. And actually the catalyst for me writing plays again was Hurricane Maria where I wrote a play for for a fundraiser that some uh, some Boricua actors and directors put together um, in Manhattan uh, last October. And um, the, the play that we're talking about tonight, uh, Puerto Rican Nocturne, was actually going to be a book. Mm. And I, I, I was trying to figure out how to write this book for like about six years. And... and, and Pretty much what happened was that in my research of the Sacro Maravilla murders and my research of this person who organized it, uh, Gonzalez Malave, who's just this fascinating, ridiculous human. I And Adria, Adria is a fictional character. She's actually a character from one of my books, mm. The Feast of San Sebastian, which was a book that I wrote about the human trafficking problem in Puerto Rico. And she was a central character of it, but it's her, like, in her 60s, whereas in the play she's in her 30s. And uh, and pretty much the the impetus for me even wanting to do a second Maravilla story is that there's a monologue in Feast of San Sebastian where she talks about how her son was murdered uh, by the police during the Sergio Maravilla. And so... I had a few readers of, of that book who were like, oh, I would love to know about Adria when she was an activist before she became this recluse. Oh, and so that was actually the impetus. So okay. I had the character of Adria and I had Gonzalez Malave. Mm-hmm. And the more and more I researched about Sergio Malavia, the more and more I was trying to find an end into the story, mm-hmm. the more and more I realized that the two people that I cared the most about were these two characters. Yeah. They were they were the characters that fascinated me because they allowed me to talk about kind of this this effect of, of Sergio Maravilla that I found to be 
just high tragedy, like mm. a, like ancient Greek tragedy level right. stuff, which was this was an event that should have broken the U.S. Puerto Rican relationship. Mm. It should have. It went all the way to the highest levels of the State Department wow. and the highest levels of the Puerto Rican government, backing the murder of two people for their political beliefs. Y, y cuenta, first of all, cuenta uh, the people who are listening who have never ever heard the 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 words Cerro Maravilla. Can you like a very I don't know, it's probably hard to sort of describe it to somebody who's never heard of it before, but can you give us like a little bit of a, a short description of like, what is Cerro Maravilla? Uh, so Cerro Maravilla is a mountain in southern Puerto Rico. It's roughly, I think it's like 20 to 30 miles from Ponce, mm. north of Ponce. And there are radio towers there. It's actually two different mountains that have radio towers on them. Okay. And... Um, One of the things that brought suspicion uh, after this particular event was the fact that it made no sense if you were going to bomb radio towers to bomb the ones that were on Cerro Maravilla. Mm. Made no sense whatsoever. And why is that? Um, what's, what's with those be, towers? Because the radio towers that were on the adjacent mountain, which I don't remember what, it, what, what it's called, yeah. that's a sign, on the adjacent mountain were these radio towers that if you bombed those, it would have knocked out all communications on the island. Oh, so if you so if you wanted to do a protest of the colonial government and the colonial president uh, presence on the island, that would have been the tower to do it. Gotcha. The one at Santa Maravilla would have just knocked out some like police radio towers. Like it wouldn't have knocked out hardly anything. And so really this was there was a bombing or there was a an attempted no, it bombing. Was, it was attempted. an attempted bombing. Yes. An attempted bombing. Attempted. And what What it was, and, and see, here, here's the thing. Mm -hmm. So they said it was an attempted bombing. The guys were there with the plan to bomb those towers. This was going to be done on July 25th, the anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Puerto Rico, mm -hmm. the 80th anniversary. So there, there were multiple protests going on in the island that day. Gonzalez Manave was an undercover police officer who grew up in an Estadista house, was a known estadista when the police estadista, recruited him. as in, like, he wanted Puerto Rico... He wanted statehood. He, he wanted Puerto wanted Rico to be a state. Okay. Yes. And he firmly believed that Puerto Ricans were incompetent, were subhuman, Ooh. were... And that the only way that we could humanize ourselves was to be a part of the United States. Jesus. And he believed that... Um, He, he came from a family that, that believed that all independistas were communists and that oh communists um, wanted to uh, turn Puerto Rico into another Cuban revolution and that everything uh, had to be done to stop them and that they were evil mm. and that they deserved to die, that they were treasonous and they deserved to die. Treasonous, not to Puerto Rico, but to the United States okay. because gotcha. his, his family were among those estadistas that believed that one's patriotic loyalty as a Puerto Rican was to the U.S. Wow. So he infiltrated these independence groups starting when he was in high school. And then during his college years, even though there's no evidence he ever took a college class, but mm -hmm. he was hanging around the colleges because the colleges were huge on independence and there were several independence groups. Okay. Many of them were socialists, and, but not necessarily communists. And the differentiation between those things would be a whole other podcast. Right, that's a whole other thing. Um, we'll talk but, about yeah, it. That's a whole other thing. <laughs> um, so he was the leader of this group. And he actually organized multiple, you could say, vandalisms as forms of protest. One of them being firing a rifle at the house of Lu uh, Luis Munoz Marin, the former governor wow. of Puerto Rico. And so he had convinced this group uh, that he led to bomb these towers as protest. And basically what he was trying to do was he was trying to uh, create cases that could be used to throw these guys in jail. Wow. But he also had aspirations for much more and for a higher uh, position in the police department. And he believed that he could do this if instead of arresting the guys, he killed them. Wow. And so he convinced, yes, he convinced 10 police officers, 10 other police officers to do this siege. 
And there were originally going to be five victims, originally. Wow. But, you know, like I was saying, that same day there were other protests. So two of the potential victims decided to attend the other protests. And then one of them, Gonzalez Malave, went to his house and was uh, was to, to pick him up. But when the guy opened the door, he had a bad feeling in his stomach. Like he just had a bad feeling that something awful was going to happen. And he suddenly didn't trust Gonzalez Malave. Like he mm-hmm. felt like Gonzalez Malave was going to do something bad. And so he made up a story that he was sick and that he couldn't go. Wow. Yeah. And so what was going to be five victims ended up just being two. One of the two victims was the son of the famous Puerto Rican author, uh, Pedro Juan Soto, who wrote the novel Usmael, which um, for, for people who aren't familiar with that book, it is, has the same standing in Puerto Rican society as The Kill a Mockingbird does in the United States. Oh, okay. Like, yeah, mm. if you're a school child in Puerto Rico, you read, you read Usmael. And so, yeah, so his, his son, who was actually the younger of the two victims, who was just a teenager, who was a child. How old was he, um, the youngest one? He was, the, the youngest son, uh, in the play I made him a little bit younger, but in real life he was 17, 18 years old. Oh I think God. he had just turned 18. Wow. But yeah, he, uh, they, they were beaten and executed. And in the aftermath, the cops said that they averted a terrorist attack mm. and that these, these victims were terrorists. Unfortunately for them, the execution of this event was so incredibly incompetent Mm -hmm. that when I was originally considering writing this story, I was going to make it a comedy because Mm -hmm. the incompetence is unbelievable. They kidnapped the cab driver. Just just starting with this detail, they kidnapped the cab driver instead of driving to the mountain themselves and had the cab driver park in front of where the shooting was going to happen. Then made him watch it, and then let him live. <laughs> yeah, right. This is like a witness to the fact that you guys this were murdering witness. two people. Okay, and so so tell me, take me through what. So the detective lured these two people was going to be more uh-huh. up up this this tower to the, these radio towers. Did he immediately um, like what exactly happened when they they all got up there? Yeah. So when they got there, they they leave the car and almost immediately. Almost immediately upon leaving the car, the other cops came out and started shooting at them. Oh my God. Almost immediately. So, uh, and and in the midst of that, Gonzalez Malave was was hit himself oh. um, in the pinky, God. which was a detail that when I read again, I thought was hilarious. Yeah, it's like I see what you mean about the comedy in it. It's like yeah. almost like it's a, a tragedy, but a, a yeah, comedic tragedy. Yes, it's like it, unbelievable. Yeah. Yes, it is. It is, and yeah. and, uh, and that detail is in the play, and and it was actually one of those things uh, when we did the first reading of it because we yeah. did the first reading of it in Colorado, uh, at the University of Colorado, and then the second one was done in in Harlem this past summer. People always ask, "Did that detail actually happen?" Because mm. you know, in, in the first scene, as you, as you know, like that's a that's a big joke. Like the cop is making fun of him for getting shot in the pinky mm. and he has a huge cast on. But there's a picture of Gonzalez Malave with that fucking cast. Mm. And it's like, or not cast, it's, it's a, a sling, but it's like, you got shot in the pinky, dude. Shut yeah. up. <laughs> and here he is. Yeah. That's so like, just sad. Wrap a on it. Like, that's too sad, though. Yeah. Oh, yeah. crazy. Yeah. So then he got shot. They they uh-huh. were they were under fire immediately, so they knew something was uh-huh. wrong. They 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 couldn't right. escape though. It sounds like they had them surrounded. It was all planned beforehand and everything else. Yeah. Right? Well, it's ten to two. You know, it's ten people <sighs> to two. You know, it's wow. like you're not going anywhere. No. Um. And, and this was the other thing. The cab driver. The sole reason the cab driver came forward, and mm-hmm. he he said this on public record. The only reason he came forward was because. They shot up his car. I mean, they like I said, they parked the car in front of where it was going to happen. Wow. So they shot up his car, caused all this damage. This is his livelihood. They, like, this guy yeah. had an eighth grade education, mm. this cab driver. They, this was the way he made his living. And the police wouldn't compensate him oh, damn. for damaging his car. Wow. And so he went to the press 
so that he could get his car fixed. Like, well, not, not because he witnessed a murder. Okay. I can like, see again the comedic. About the what the hell? Oh, my God. And, yeah, yeah. So, it's like, uh, so, so yeah. So, so, it's like just all these absurdities. But then wow. the other cops, uh, seeing that Gonzalez was hit, they the two of the cops then took him to the hospital. And then the other cops, and, and this is re- reportedly what they said. Uh, it was said in the Senate tennis testimony when they confessed mm. um, five years later in, in 1983, they, the cops confessed to doing it. They uh, apparently the, the guy who was left in charge turned to the other guys after they had beaten the, the two activists with the with the butts of their rifles. They, they beat them blood, uh, black and blue mm. uh, in the face and face and body. And he turned to the other guys and he said, all right, you, you know your orders. Let's. Let's get this over with. And one of the guys, uh, his last name was Cruz. He was the he was the shooter, and he placed the uh, his rifle against the head of uh, Pedro Juan Soto's son, who, before he shot him, said, "If you're if you're going to kill me, si me vas a matar, dame un tiro en la cabeza para que no sufrir. Mm. If you're going to kill me, shoot me in the head so I don't so I don't suffer." God, that's haunting. Yeah, and, and that's that's why I included it in the play, and it's, it's repeated again and again. Because um, mm. that, that's a very brave thing to tell someone. It's like, I know you're going to kill me, but I'm going to tell you where and how to kill me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to dictate this to yeah. some degree. <laughs> and yeah, and then they they, they killed wow. they, they kill him, dumped him in a ditch. Wow. And when this so. happened, it sounds like initially people were just you know, pegging this as a terrorist thing. So the families, what, what happened with the families? How did they get justice? Well, so the family of, of uh, the Soto family, mm-hmm. um, they, they really pressed to do a civil suit and got the other family on board to do a civil suit and they sued the, the Puerto Rican government and won. Mm-hmm. And they actually won before anybody confessed to, <laughs> to actually murdering them. Oh, but see. the evidence, but the evidence was really clear mm-hmm. it was obvious i mean the fact that okay you said that they because they said that the kids were armed and that they were shooting that they shot first at the police right that's what they said okay but they were beaten to death they were half beaten to death uh, like they were already right. near Your unconsciousness story, that's how badly the story has so many holes yeah right right like how could you have done that if you shot them first <laughs> Like, if you were right. shooting at them, because they tried to say that they shot them first and then beat them up after they had shot them. And it was like, no, that doesn't really make much sense. No, wow. <laughs> Not a lot of sense. And then the other thing is that, so the radio tower, like, there's, it's not just the tower. There's also, like, an office for, you know, people to be monitoring the towers. Mm-hmm. Those security guards, they didn't fire any bullets, like, the security guards didn't fire any bullets. They actually ducked down because they didn't know what the hell was going on. Wow. And the thing is, is that the radio tower had no bullets. It had no shrapnel. Right. And so if no what these cops there. were saying is that mm-hmm. these kids came out of this car and were just shooting, wouldn't they have hit the radio tower? Yeah. They would have hit the guard tower at least, you know? And so that didn't square. And then the thing about the taxi driver, the taxi driver, it, it was actually within just a couple months that he came forward because he was like, hey, I need to get my car fixed. Was that really what so, did it? Was that what kind of yeah. started the ball rolling into people investigating? Yeah. And oh, yeah. it, it, it was literally within just a few months. Wow. Like by December of 1978, it was being investigated. Wow. Like, so it, it actually hadn't. came down very quickly. If he hadn't okay. come forward, do you think this would have all been swept under the rug? Potentially, mm. but potentially, even though, even without his testimony, there were too many holes. Yeah. And there was another, there, there was another thing that, that caused a problem with this too, which mm-hmm. is that the Puerto Rican police department during the 1970s and eighties or early eighties was horrendously corrupt. Mm. And when I say horrendously corrupt, I mean, there was this guy, you can Google him. His last name was Maldonado. If you look up Detective Maldonado, Puerto Rico, 1970s, mm-hmm. you will you will read about a guy who they need to make a Netflix series about. Mm-hmm. This guy would 
kidnap drug dealers, kill them, uh, oftentimes torture them first, Jeez. take their drugs and sell them, sell them themselves. Oh my God. He once hijacked a plane, <laughs> took it to Miami to sell drugs, and then yeah. came back. He once did a, he once robbed a jewelry store. <laughs> Jesus, what the hell um, is To pay this? off a drug debt. <laughs> I'm going to Google this. <laughs> Google this guy. He is insane. And, but he's typical of what was happening Maldonado, back then. He was typical of what was happening. Jeez. He also threw himself into the Sarah Madavia mess. But before the taxi driver came, came forward with his confession. Oh. Before that. He held a press conference to say that he knew the truth about Sergio Maravilla. Okay. But he wouldn't say it at the press conference. <laughs> it was oh all God. just for show. Oh the reason God. he did it was because after the killings, the police department decided to reorganize itself to try to reassign all the officers that were involved. Mm. And as a result, Maldonado lost his crew. Like he had a crew of these like elite narcotic officers who were running around, Ugh. basically running the biggest drug cartel in Puerto Rico, oh my God. and he, they broke them up. And so him going to the press because everybody in the police department knew about it; they knew the truth. Oh my God! He held that police conference to pressure the superintendent of police of, of Puerto Rico to bring his crew back, and it worked. Oh. <laughs> that was the only reason he did it. That's insane. Insane. So, so I think you can see why I wanted to make this a comedy originally. Yeah. It's, it's absolutely insanity. So many things. Um, yeah, and Gonzalez Malave, his wife, she was, you know, much like he's depicted in the play, she was a part of the independista, not movement, but the community. The least. community that believed that yeah. Puerto Rico should be that free. Okay. should be independent. Like, yeah. they met at a nationalist uh, party what? <laughs> in oh college that, that's where they met and so this woman knew uh, or didn't know for five years because they, they got married in 1973 oh. she knew for she didn't know for five years that he was actually this estadista anti-puerto rican cop mm. <laughs> she thought he was an independence activist wow and um and he really did get her a job with the police force to act as his eyes and ears. Oh and once she found out the truth, she divorced his ass. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Damn, that's but it's it's such a it's such a tragedy too that he like so he orchest orchestrated this whole thing. Um, mm -hmm. they finally so they finally investigated it. When did when did things kind of blow up in sort of I mean, so you were saying um, did this make it to the American press? Like was this was this covered at the time on the American side, or, or was it... Not very much. Not very not, much. Not very much. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. It, it, it received some press in New York mm -hmm. due to the Eurekan population. Yeah. But outside of that, it really didn't hit the U.S. press. But it was the biggest story in Puerto Rico for 12 years. Wow. Because the... Actually, longer. The first investigation was in 1980. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, 1979. The last investigation was in 1992, mm -hmm. but but the police officers who who killed these two kids and Gonzalez Malave himself, or mm -hmm. well, Gonzalez Malave got away with it for, for one. He he wasn't in prison, wow. but he was murdered, and he was murdered by a group of nationalists. Oh, wow. And the police never investigated it. It was basically seen as a tit for tat. It's like okay, well, we Damn. gave you Gonzalez Malave. We won't investigate you. <laughs> wow, that's insane. And he was killed in front of his mother. <gasps> he was actually killed in his mother's driveway. By a dr it was a drive-by shooting. Wow. And um, Not that I can say I feel bad for him. I feel bad for his mother. No, but, but damn. Right. <laughs> oh, my God. Right. But it's, but it's like, so he, he was killed in 1986. 1986 was also the year that the officers who, who carried out the killings were uh, convicted and, and put in jail. So they were and um, and I believe I believe one of the I believe one of the the killers actually died in jail, mm. and the other one is still is still there. He hasn't been paroled. Wow. Um, and so and what, what's interesting, and this is also in the play, because the play has kind of a mix of mm -hmm. of acting, but then also video. And there's a scene where it shows where it shows real news footage from 1986, and it, it was actually a year in review. Mm. And 
that's really interesting. Like, I watched the whole thing. They never mention Gonzalez Malave. They never mention him. But they do mention the other officers who were involved because they were convicted. And so they have a whole segment on Cerro Maravilla that they talk about. Never mention Gonzalez Malave or that he was killed. I think it's interesting, too, because that shows you what has continued to happen in Puerto Rico, where history gets sort of twisted or, or, or certain things are omitted and things like that happen. Um, but I'm really glad you did the play. What were these two men who died? How were they remembered? I mean, I think I saw that there was some memorial, but what, what were they like? Did you, did you do research into their lives? Like, what were they like and what was the... Uh, the after, yeah, yeah, how were they remembered? You know, they, they were both um, very highly regarded, like, in, in their communities, and their mm-hmm. friends loved them. Uh, Pedro Juan Soto's son especially was, uh, a lot of people saw him as their little brother, and it, it destroyed their families. Like, Pedro Juan Soto was never the same afterwards. Um, and the the family of, of the other victim, Arnaldo, apparently never really recovered from it either like it just destroyed his mother mm. and so even though my adria is fiction like the fact that that this tore apart the families of the victims was true mm. and you know in in my play my whole thing was depicting grief that didn't turn into something that was inspirational mm. that allowing grief to be grief Right. And that struggle to, you know, be, because when, when grief gets turned inspirational, it's oftentimes like a show for the community. Mm. You know, it's to make other people feel comfortable. Yes. Right. And and I was like, no, I'm, no, I'm going to write about is, grief that yeah. doesn't end. Yeah. Grief that continues. Because that's real. Yeah. Because yeah. That's real. Wow. You know, and that was that was actually a choice. Um, there, there's a scene where where Adria is. It is um, it insulted and badgered by a friend of hers because she won't turn her grief into activism. Mm-hmm. And Adria tears her head off yeah. <laughs> as a result of saying that. Yeah. But the reason why that scene is in there is because that was an actual reaction yeah. <laughs> that a reader had of the play. That the reader had the play, uh, a friend of mine who is like, why doesn't Adria like try to lead a revolution or something? No, it's no, like, no, well, no, for no. one thing, it's a true story and it didn't happen. Exactly. And two, <laughs> wow. and, and two, why does she need to be inspirational? Why? Yeah. Why can't a person just never get over the fact that their son is murdered? Absolutely. You know, like, I think I don't think that's asking too much. Right, right. <laughs> you know, so and, and one of the things for me was um, that that was inspirational for me creatively uh, when I was researching it was I actually I listened to an interview with the mother of Michael Brown, who was who was killed in Ferguson. Yeah. And she and, and the interviewer kept trying to get her to focus on the positive, on mm. like all the activist work that she was doing no, and no, no. how she was bringing all these people together and what people could learn from her story. Mm. And was, like they were really trying to put a positive spin on it. And then they asked her, what is the memory of, of their son that they wish people could have? Mm. Which I thought was a great question. Yeah. And Michael Brown's mother started telling the story of how of their last fishing trip as a family mm-hmm. and how Michael made them stay out there until he caught a fish. Mm. So even like all the way to sunset, like everybody else had caught fish and everybody else was like ready to go. And he was like, no, I'm, I'm going to get a fish. And mm. right before it got dark, he finally got a fish. Mm. Wow. <laughs> and, um, and when she was telling that story, which I think is a beautiful and very poignant story, Um, It it tells you about his character, something very beautiful about his character. And while she's telling the story, multiple times her voice kept breaking. Mm. And you could tell she was on the brink of tears and just like everything in her power was just holding it together. Mm -hmm. So she wouldn't have like a breakdown on on NPR, you know. And that stuck with me. And that Mm -hmm. stuck with me because, you know, I'm... I've lost a lot of friends. I've lost a lot of loved ones. Yeah. And many of them, their, their deaths still haunt me. Many of their deaths still get to me. Yeah. And it doesn't matter if it was 10 years ago or two years ago or this year. Right. Like Absolutely. when you lose someone, it's a hole in yourself. Yeah. 
And I feel like, especially for people of color, there's a public pressure, especially in, in this age of Facebook and Twitter, there's a public pressure to always be the one resisting and standing up for things and mm. being inspirational. And it's like, but that's not life. That's not life. Life isn't yeah. always inspiration. And also, when you grieve, you don't owe it to a goddamn person. Absolutely. To make them feel comfortable or them right. feel good. Right, exactly. You know? So exactly. so I, I wanted to, to tell that because I, I feel like the story of Sacramento, you know, we covered a lot of stuff that's very comical. But yeah. keep in mind, the reason why these cops were so reckless mm -hmm. was because they believed that the system would protect them. Mm -hmm. There was a system in place that already said it's okay to kill nationalists. Absolutely. That it's okay to kill people because of their political beliefs. Yeah, the persecution and, of people. And this and so can you actually can you tell people a little bit about that? I mean, we can't we could do another podcast interview, I'm sure. <laughs> that will we we will um in terms of how the fact that the pro, the persecution of people who believe that Puerto Rico should be independent, an independent nation back then um, was so severe. You know, we could we could talk about different points in history, but at that point in history, right. people were literally being killed for believing that way. Right. Well, this was so you know, in 1978, it was still illegal to display the Puerto Rican flag like in your car or in your mm. house or publicly, or publicly that that wasn't in a government building and didn't have the U.S. flag right next to it. I can't imagine. It was illegal. Um, and had been illegal since 1948. That law actually didn't get struck down until the 1980s. Mm. In 1965, you have Pedro Albizu Campos dies mm. um, after being uh, tortured, uh, suffering radiation torture by the U.S. government mm -hmm. while he was in prison in Atlanta after the 1950 uh, revolution. And 1950 revolution is a whole other episode you can do. Yeah, definitely. But the, the first statehood governor came into power in 1968, three years after Albizu's death, and was emboldened by the fact that Albizu wasn't around mm -hmm. to start really going after nationalists. Mm -hmm. um, now, keep in mind, in the 1950s, over 3,000 independistas were disappeared. Oh, my God. And by many accounts were taken to prisons and, and murdered. And uh, That's a history that people I don't, I mean, I didn't know. I definitely yeah. didn't know. No, many people don't know. So how does that affect um, the psyche so, of, of Puerto Ricans, so do you feel? Yeah. Puerto Rican, well, it scares the hell out of them. Yeah, of course. For one thing. Um, it, that was an intimidation tactic that very much worked. You then had the 1960 or 1959 Cuban Revolution, which then allowed independismo to be portrayed as a communist plot. And, right. you know, Che Guevara, when he spoke at the United Nations in 1964 in New York, he talked about Albizu mm -hmm. and he talked about the struggle for Puerto Ricans for their independence. Mm -hmm. So these pro-US forces on the island and also the FBI mm -hmm. were able to directly relate um, Puerto Rican uh, liberty with the communist revolution in Cuba. Mm -hmm. And they used that to intimidate people. And I remember, you know, my old childhood, I was born in 1984. And I remember into the 90s, after the Cold War was even done, Relatives of mine saying that, oh, you oh you don't want anything to do with nationalists. They're all communists. Oh, my God. So they, you know, nationalists are dangerous. They twisted the narrative. They molded uh -huh. it. And, mm. you know, also keep in mind, Pedro Albizu Campos was black. Mm. He was a black Puerto Rican. And so the independent movement was very much associated with being a black Puerto Rican. Mm. That yeah. black Puerto Ricans, you know, these, these mongrels, because racism in Puerto Rico racism. is super real and also very twisted because mm -hmm. a black Puerto Rican can be accepted into a family, but an African-American can't. Mm -hmm. So black Puerto Rican, bottom of the totem pole in Puerto Rican society, an African-American even below him. Ridiculous. Be because at people's convenience, a black Puerto Rican, oh, well, at least he's Puerto Rican. Yeah. I heard that shit all the time. Um, yeah. You know, he goes, like, like I said, my mother was a black Puerto Rican, or mm -hmm. is, she's still alive, mm -hmm. um, is a black Puerto Rican. My father, very light-skinned, his family, full of very racist people. Uh, yeah. My father was not, and still is not. But his family was full of racist people, and, that, and some of them were people who married into the family that were black Puerto Ricans mm -hmm. and would bash other black people 
not even looking at themselves. Yeah, the internalized <laughs> racism too. Uh, definitely oh. a whole other episode. God damn, this this is such a heavy heavy topic, but I think it's a topic the world needs to hear about. So I'm I appreciate you taking time to write the play. So what's next with the play? Is this going to be available um, to people? Well, uh, the the play there there is a bilingual version, mm. um, which uh, which I worked on with uh, with a, this absolutely amazing uh, writer and, and visual artist named Kasal Ghazi, who is uh, who's mm-hmm. Iranian, mm-hmm. Um, but she she knows five languages. She's lived in Latin America. She oh, wow. uh, is almost more Latina than some Latinos, <laughs> and <laughs> um, and so she she worked with me on the translation. Um, but but yeah, you know we have. I have uh, several theater companies in, in New York and L.A. and D.C. They're all looking at it. Um, and a, a Cuban actor who wants to um, do like a traveling production of it in Latin America. That's amazing. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I have I have some some leads, some some potential. Uh, there, there is a potential theater, um, mm. but it hasn't been finalized. Uh, I, so I, I can't really talk about it. But, I really hope it um, is. I mean, you know, you already yeah. know. You have my full support. As soon as I, as soon as you have a place to show it, we'll we'll share it with the the listeners and and I'll share it with oh, my networks. You. But yeah, it's thank an important yeah. thing. Yeah, and and you know, if anybody listening is interested in looking at it, I'd love to send it to them. Awesome. Uh, we're just we're we're looking for where we can do the world premiere. We've already done two readings, uh, mm. two public readings, and uh, they went really well. Awesome. Um, and uh, and you know, we're just—it's it, very hard to get to, to get plays off the ground when yes, you're not yes. affiliated with the theater company already. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's a little bit of an uphill climb, but uh, we have already gotten interest for it. I think my biggest my, my biggest thing that that I want with this play is I, I want I, I want it not just to entertain but to enlighten. You mm-hmm. know, and I, I wanted yeah. I wanted to push people. You know, there's. The, the character of Gonzalez Malave, especially in the second act, I pretty much use him as like a bully to the audience to kind of throw their own prejudices in their face. Mm-hmm. And and one of those, and he has a moment, because you know, he says a lot of despicable things in the play, yeah. but he has this one moment where he's basically saying that statehood won Ugh. because the independence cause, was, it, it, its affiliation with Sergio Maravilla was pretty much erased within two years. Mm-hmm. Right, because the... the the PPD, the the ruling party or the status quo party in Puerto Rico, basically stole the narrative, and they made Central Maravilla about them. Mm. And and because uh, of a lot of factors, uh, and I know we don't have time to go into, um, the independence movement never mobilized that event, and they never kept their their part in that event mm. um, alive. They really didn't, and so mm. the narrative got taken away from them. Statehood. What the, the statehood party was back in power all throughout the 90s it's in power right now mm-hmm. and you see like like and they actually have they're they're the only political party in puerto rico that has increased membership mm-hmm. over the last 10 years mm-hmm. and and that's and, and so Gonzalez Mave, kind of his whole point is is that like okay you you got rid of me and you exposed all this stuff about statehood mm-hmm. supporters and about the ideology but it didn't do anything. Right. You failed. It was all Independence by design. failed. Yeah. You know, and so... Their design worked. And, yeah, the intimidation yeah, the worked. Works. The brainwashing worked. And, yep. Yeah. It all... And, um, they got what they and wanted. And he asked the yeah. audience, though. Mm. Uh, well, he asked the audience. He says, if you don't like it, what are you going to do about it? Mm. And that's a line that I... I want people to hear that in the theater yeah. and I want them to get angry. <laughs> yeah. And to do something about it. Yeah, because you you know sh- sharing things on Facebook isn't doing something about it. Right, tweeting isn't doing something about it. Um, having arguments with your friends mm-hmm. or e- even e- even in just a protest, a protest only does something for the duration of that protest. That's right. all it does. Exactly, there needs to be a sustained reaction, yeah. a solidarity, which I think I'm seeing uh-huh. a lot more of, but. I'm sure it's been difficult, but I think it's great. I'm I'm really glad you're using your art to to get people to think, to get people to to get up and do something and get out there because it's 
it's not going to just happen on its own. And I, I think all these points are, are super important for the Puerto Ricans that are, you know, looking for ways to, to learn about their history, to learn about how they can, you know, be part of this movement, to understand exactly why it is that so many Puerto Ricans want statehood, want to be like the other, like the white person, like the American. It's, it's a very eye-opening conversation, I think, around this. So I appreciate your time. Where, where can people reach you if they wanted to reach you? Well, I'm, I'm really not on social media. Mm-hmm. I'm only on Instagram, okay. uh, but people can't find me there. Okay. Um, but, you know, if people want to reach me, um, probably the best way is either through LCG. Um, and we have our, our, our email is publisher at lcgeditores.com. Mm-hmm. Um, or you can also reach out to me directly. Um, my email is john, J-O-N. Marcantoni, M-A-R-C-A-N-T-O-N-I, at Gmail. And, yeah, feel free to email me anytime. Perfect. Well, thanks so much, John. We did definitely go over our, our time, but I'm glad we did because we <laughs> covered so much. And I'm, you know, I'm looking forward to having you back on. Okay. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to, to have been on today. Thank you. All right. So as promised, I am going to be reading some excerpts from the play with John's permission, of course. I hope you enjoy. This first one is Scene 1, The Official Story. The story of the Cerro Maravilla Massacre is central to understanding the current state of affairs in Puerto Rico, as it was a near-fatal blow to the independence movement and did not hamper the growing support for the statehood movement. But the focus on the social ramifications can easily blind us from the real victims of this tragedy. This tale is not concerned with the controversies of the various trials, media coverage, and political maneuverings of the PPD, PNP, and PIP parties in Puerto Rico, who each found opportunities and downsides to the fallout of the case. The reasons for this story is to show how more than two people died on July 25, 1978, on a mountain in south-central Puerto Rico, and that those corpses have been forgotten in the annals of history. Without understanding their lives, we cannot comprehend the profundity of the impact of the assassinations of two young people on a sunny day, day like today, when the explosion of tensions between activists, police, the government, and the colonial system on the island of enchantment reached its breaking point. Now the two Victims, the two young men, are called Carlos Enrique Soto Arrevi and Arnaldo Dario Rosado. They were both beaten and shot to death. They did not have weapons on them. They did not shoot back. They were executed. Soto Arrevi said before he died, Si me vas a matar, dame el tiro en la cabeza para no sufrir. If you're going to kill me, shoot me in the head so that I don't suffer. This next excerpt is of the mother of one of the victims as she is standing before her son's casket. She's alone and she's speaking to her son. Her name is Adria. You know, my mother buried three of her children, all younger than five. I never understood how she found the strength to go on. I wish she were alive so I could ask, but no matter what she said, I still wouldn't understand. I will never be happy again. You will always be missing from me. I don't remember life before you. Sometimes I think I'm remembering something from my childhood only to to realize it was yours. I was just a child, a stupid child, praying the rosary with my abuela and believing everything the church and schools taught me. I thought, I thought if I raised you outside of that world, I'd protect you from all the dumb lies were sold. That if you saw the world for what it is, that you wouldn't be so trusting of the wrong people. Last night I couldn't sleep because I just kept thinking about where I went wrong. I kept you out of the church and away from religion passed down to us by the colonial overlords so you could be wary of their white god and I kept you from the Piti Yankees who worship Uncle Sam just another white god but I 
I didn't save you from the God of hope. The only God that nationalists have. I let you think that hope and love is all we need. I lied to you. Like a Christian, like an American. I'm so sorry. I missed your voice. I fear I'm losing it already. I fear when I forget how you sounded that I'll lose you once again. And all I'll be left with are my mistakes. Thank you.